0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you, but i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to our series on world history. Hope all is well and your week is going well. In our 35th podcast, we wrapped up by looking at the discovery of the Americas in terms of the characteristics of the great powers that would colonize here from back in Europe. We also looked at the rise of the actual individual countries. For example, when France and Spain and England carved out their places on the world, putting themselves on the same map that we see today, we looked at the origins of when they started. We also then looked at the various names that are sometimes inappropriately applied, or I should say mistakenly applied, to Great Britain. For example, the difference between Great Britain, England, the British Isles, etc. So before we move on and look at the way that the discovery of the Americas was beginning now to reshape human thinking, about the shape of the earth and our relationship to other celestial bodies, in other words, the way science is significantly going to take off as the result of the age of discovery, something needs to happen back at home first. In other words, the mother countries need to start getting their homes back in order and strengthened in order to be able to have any kind of an established control over the lands in the Americas. Please remember again that I in no way mistakenly believe that there wasn't a single human being from modern northern Canada all the way down to the southern tip of South America. Clearly it was inhabited by millions of natives. However, the Europeans are gonna be bringing technology, unfortunately applied to military technology, which is going, of course, to give the explorers and the colonizers the upper hand for centuries to come. So in order to be able to get their house in order, if, you, if the individual European countries that are going to colonize, and again, we've already identified the primary colonizers being England, the Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, and France, they need, again, to make sure their house is in order, and the number one thing that they need to do is establish their control over their population. It's one thing for those European countries to war with one another, when truly because of the small physical size of Europe, an army could progress from one end of a country in one day to the other end of the country in a day or two later. England's only across the English Channel, right? But now these Americas that the Europeans are interpreting is land for the taking that's going to be again under the best weather conditions a six-week trip out and a six-week trip back not to mention the time there there's a significant of course amount of uncertainty as to what is in these lands how much potable water what type of earth is actually does these two continents comprise of right how large are they how far north and west and south do they go so it's going to take a considerable amount of resources in order to be able to plant their flags in these new lands. They're going to have difficulty doing it if their own houses is in disarray back at home. So in this podcast, we're going to briefly look at the primary economic system and two primary political systems that are going to come as a result of this age. The first one in terms of the economic system that we're going to look at in our 36th podcast in world history is mercantilism. And I'll flesh this system out later in future podcasts. But mercantilism, simply put, was an economic system based on the premise that a country's worth was determined by the amounts of resources it possessed and its imports versus its exports. I'm going to repeat that. It, again, is an economic, not a political system, based on a premise that a country's worth was determined by the amount of resources it possessed, as well as its imports and exports. To flesh this out and put this into an analogy, for France to be operating at the peak of mercantilist development, that would mean that all French citizens have exactly what they need Produced by their own country. That would be their cake. Everything they need, they produce. But what about the icing on the cake? Who doesn't like the icing as part of the cake or the frosting? That would be this that the French people produce enough not only to feed themselves, clothe themselves, and give them everything that they need, but they actually produce excess that they can then sell to other countries, or trade for things that they might want but don't necessarily need. But the ideal would be that they produce excess that they can sell to the neighboring countries. On paper, in a vacuum, that can sound like a really ideal economic system, but it's inherently flawed, so flawed that it has the potential to lead to war. Because think about it, if France is at peak mercantilist development, and how therefore, can England be, or the Netherlands or Spain or Portugal? Because if Spain is buying excess goods from France, then Spain therefore is not at peak or, or mercantilist development. because they must need things that they can't produce. So how then, therefore, do these individual European countries produce everything that they possibly need? Well, those new lands in the Americas just might be the key to being able to satisfy what they need moving into the future. But as I said earlier, it's inherently rife with conflict or the risk of conflict because of Spain produces everything plus more, as well as Portugal, the Netherlands, and England then who's buying their excess? And sure, they can trade with Asian countries, Middle Eastern countries, but within their own European continent, who buys the excess, you see? So therefore, it would appear that only one country within a particular region could be at top mercantilist development, because they have to sell their excess. In order to sell their excess, their buyers, therefore, must inherently be non at their peak of mercantilist development. It is an all or nothing thinking. And that's why it's so rife with the risk of conflict. Where might one, much less a nation of people, come up with such a convoluted or backwards idea that you are self-sufficient if you produce everything that you need and need to purchase nothing from other people? Ladies and gentlemen, they got it from themselves. It's human nature. Prior to the modern age that we're talking about now, what by modern, of course, I mean getting into the early stages of the age of discovery and at the end of the Middle Ages, think about going back in human history. You were self-sufficient if everything you needed you produced with your own body, basically, your own hands and feet, or that of other family members. You didn't want to be in a position where you had to buy or trade from neighbors in order to satisfy your basic needs, such as having potable water, grains or vegetables, or housing or clothing materials. You didn't want to be in a state of need you wanted to be able to produce everything that you needed for your own being and your own well-being of that of your family. So is it no surprise, therefore, that the mindset of the individual, by extension, was the mindset of a nation of individuals. In People at this particular time, listeners, would be horrified to, to, to meet me, to find out that I'm somehow managing able to provide I'm managing to be able to provide for my family, yet I physically do not produce the food that we eat. I certainly don't make the clothing that all of us wear. God forbid what that would look like. I don't produce the furniture that we sit on and the table that we eat. To these people at this mercantilist time, they would say, Kinsella, how do you get away with that? What are you doing in order to be able to buy these things? Oh, well, I'm selling something. Well, you can't be selling anything, you don't make anything. No, I'm selling knowledge. I go to Cuyahoga Community College, and the college pays me to disseminate my knowledge of history to students that are paying the college in order to obtain the credit hours so that they can advance their degree and get a body of knowledge that they in turn will sell. But then, how are you getting this food and shelter and clothing and these things called cars? How are you doing this? Well, you see, I get paid from the college, and then I pay the people that produce those things ladies and gentlemen, in a modern day society, mercantilism would never work. The problem is we're not modern in terms of 20th or 21st century back then, and they don't have the ability of hindsight to realize that mercantilism, by definition, doesn't work. So again, we'll expand more on mercantilism in later podcasts as it becomes relevant to our covering and continuing coverage of world history. So I want to now move to the uh, to the two political developments in the sense of political control of a people that largely had not been observed up until the age of discovery. What I'd like to do now is to rewind many, many podcasts ago to when I covered the podcast on the rise of Charlemagne, and specifically when he was simply Charles until Christmas Day 800, and therefore modified his name to be Charlemagne or Charles the Great, Charles of the land. Why, if we remember from those earlier podcasts, why did Charles do this? Because Charles was having problems controlling his people. His people weren't interested in paying taxes. They didn't care if they were arrested. All they were worried about was Roman Catholic canon law, living their lives as best they could until they basically biding their time until they would die. And as the scripture says, be saved to go to the eternal life in the kingdom of God, where there would be no strife, no anxiety, nothing but the Garden of Eden. Charles and his predecessors couldn't figure out how to control these people. And if you recall, Charles's predecessors were constantly trying to find aces up their sleeve to be able to ally with the Roman Catholic Church, because it was clearly believed that if the Roman Catholic Church was in a leader's back pocket, it was much easier to control the population. So Charles's predecessors were doing things like becoming baptized, as Clovis did, and then giving land to the church, and a bunch of different other ideas that by the time of Charles the Great, all those aces had already been played. That's when Charles' brilliant idea of combining his power with that of the Roman Catholic Church, and therefore creating what became known as the Holy Roman Empire. But you see, that ship came and went. That plane took off a long time ago now. We are in the 1600s. There are lands to be discovered, more lands to be discovered where Columbus went, what might be beyond where Columbus went. These European countries are chomping at the bit to be able to launch these massive, expensive journeys and core of discoveries. Therefore, they need to control their people. But unlike the days of Charlemagne, on the European continent, Roman Catholicism was by and large the only religion on the menu. Sure, there was Orthodoxy, but that was way east. Sure, there was Islam, but that was south and east. But on the European continent proper, Roman Catholicism was the religion of the day. That's no longer the case now in the 1600s, especially the late 1600s getting into the 1700s. We now have on the European continent the dominant forces of Protestantism, not just Lutheranism, as you recall, with the Treaty of Augsburg signed in 1555 that we discussed prior, but also, of course, with the Treaty of Westphalia signed in 1648, giving us the birth of Calvinism as another Protestant faith. There are now major religions, not only within each individual country, on the European continent, country by country, but even within one country's boundaries, we have people of a different faith. Orthodoxy is also continuing to spread Northwest, as is the influences of Islam. Lining a a, a political leader, trying to line up with the Roman Catholic Church and align with them and form an alliance, that's not going to satisfy the whole population. So, was one had, does a, the French leader or English king or Spanish queen have to jump in bed with the Roman Catholic pope, the head of Islam, the head of orthodoxy, the leader of Protestant faiths such as Lutheranism and Calvinism? That's just not going to happen. Inherently, that would be contradictory. So, how, therefore, does a leader attempt to control their people by trying to claim that I have the right to do this, just like Charlemagne said almost eight to 900 years ago. And the way to do it is to separate yourself from an established religion and claim that you have, you, the king, have the right to lead the people And the people have to listen and honor what the king or queen says, because the king or queen has, ready for this word, absolute authority. And there's the key word. And the rise of a political system that had not been witnessed in human society up until now. It's the political system called absolutism. In order for absolutism to work, it needs three central tenets. Number one, power cannot be shared. State sovereignty, a country's sovereignty, has to be in the hands of a sole ruler. No shared power, no oligarchy, no aristocracy. One ruler. Second tenet, That ruler has to possess, and the people have to believe that the ruler possesses, ready for this, divine right, which divinity, uh -uh, don't go there, don't ask, don't attempt to fill it in. Whatever your faith is, it's that faith's divinity is the reason I'm here, and you must obey the edicts and laws that I, the royal family, the royal leader, pass. So one, state sovereignty in the hands of one ruler, two, ruler claiming to have divine right, three, the sense of final tenant is that the key to retaining power was the king's ability to manage the country's financial affairs. If people thought that they were militarily and fiscally safe and sound, absolutism had the best chances of working. So let's see how this fleshes out with just a couple of examples, and we're just going to head to the central example of absolutism, and that, of course, is in the country of France. In fact, it would be King Louis the France, 1643 to 1715, that would bring France to the peak of absolutist development and truly flesh out the definition of what absolutism really is. And I don't mean this to be funny, that if you look up absolutism, well, not in a paper dictionary anymore because they rarely have pictures, but if you look up absolutism on Google, usually it's going to be the face of Louis XIV that's going to be matching that definition because he is the one that largely, again, takes this from a vague idea to an established exacting definition. He is going to do this, first off, by making France look far more opulent, far more luxurious and wealthy, in fact, than it really was. He's going to take the former hunting lodge of his predecessor, Louis Thirteenth, and he will turn that into the principal site of his new newly established government. And that, of course, is known as the Palace of Versailles. Versailles is not that far from Paris, so it's not as though he was going to the other end of the country. Just outside of Paris, Versailles was a wonderful former hunting lodge, now turned into a royal palace with some of the most expensive materials that would be used to build this truly, truly magnificent uh, structure. King Louis would not only establish that site, he would help to push the French language to be considered the premier language in all of Europe. Now, in some cases, though, he does remotely somewhat break the rules of absolutism because he was somewhat of a poor manager of economic affairs. But the people, by and large, believed in the efforts in, that he was doing. France was getting a recognition that it had not enjoyed since its inception. However, he would also help to bolster this idea of absolutism by removing. Competing religions. The majority of the French at this time were Roman Catholic. So, therefore, he's going to ride the momentum of the predominant religion within his country's boundaries, and he's going to eliminate the ability for any other faith to be practiced. And he does this by revoking the Edict of Nantes in 1685. The Edict of Nantes, pronounced Nantes, but it's spelled N-A-N-T-E-S, he revokes this in 1685. Now, mind you, this had been on the books. The Edict of Nantes had been on the books since 1598, passed by King Henry IV. And it gave French Protestants substantial freedom and power. The Edict was Henry's way of attempting for civil unity by separating church and state. It was in the, going in the exact opposite direction that Louis felt he needed to go if he was going to rule his country with an iron fist in order to embark on the age and, and be a part of the age of discovery with these two huge continents and what appears to be the other side of the earth. It promoted the edict, however, promoted religious toleration and ended many uh, civil skirmishes within France, known as the French War of Religions. But that was an age that was before Louis. Therefore, with the edict revoked, Louis the Fourteenth was declaring Protestantism illegal. So he bolstered the Roman Catholic French at the same time gaining significant recognition from the Roman Catholic Church. But please note that unlike Louis' way, way, way long ago predecessor, Charlemagne, who felt he needed to have Roman Catholic backing, Louis XIV did not. He has the power based on divine authority. I dare a commoner to question it would be the going mentality. So that's again what we're talking about and what we mean by this idea of absolutism flushed out by using just one example of King Louis XIV in France. At the same time, we're going to see how absolutism also, however, can be rife with uh, risk of war, just like the economic system of mercantilism can. And that is also uh, demonstrated at the exact same time that King Louis is reigning, that his neighbor to the south, Spain, is going to embark in what will eventually be called the War of the Spanish Succession. Now, I don't cover a lot of wars of succession in any of my classes. I cover the pertinent ones, clearly not all that have ever taken place in the history of the European continent. However, when one hears about a war of succession, Succession has nothing to do with well, who you know who's going to succeed and who won't in any other way except politics. So when you hear about a war of, fill in the country's name, and then follow it with the word succession, you automatically know that there's going to be an issue about who will be considered the king or queen in that given country. So the war of the Spanish succession, therefore, before I go any further, You'd be able to sit back and say, okay, then this isn't, it has to do with a royal family in Spain who's questioning who's going to be the next king or queen. In this particular case, this war went from 1701 to 1713. King Louis, or excuse me, King of Spain, Charles II, died leaving no legitimate heir. In a will, however, that was uncovered, he left his throne to Prince Philip of France, the grandson of Louis XIV. Think about this now. If you have a French king's nephew now taking the throne of your immediate neighbor to the south, Spain, and when I say immediate, Please know that geography substantially gets in the way here. You have those massive Pyrenees Mountains, so large, in fact, that you do have an independent country within those mountains called Andorra, but nevertheless, it is your next major political power to the south, that being Spain. So Louis XIV, is sitting king of France, would have his nephew sitting as the new king of Spain. Now, there's a way to align not only religious unity, but political unity as well. Where's the downside in that? Well, to the French or the Spanish? Mm, Nothing, perhaps. (laughs) Except that Spain and France don't exist in a vacuum. No, no, not even close. Rather, the Netherlands, Austria, Prussia, England, they will form what becomes known as the Grand Alliance, to make darn sure that that particular succession of kings does not take place. It's a war that will break out and again last for just over 10 years, and will finally be settled with the Peace of Utrecht in 1713. And what comes out of it is this. Philip, ironically enough, would be, again, the grandson of the 14th, Louis XIV, he would be allowed to actually possess the Spanish throne. The Grand Alliance says, okay, basically we're going to go ahead and follow the letter to the will here, the letter to the law. Philip, you can go ahead and retain that throne. But in front of all the leaders of these other countries, you will sign a non-unity clause between you and your neighbor to the north, France, irrespective of whether there's a family relationship there or not. In other words, they could have cared less that there was a DNA connection. Of course, they knew what DNA was. So then you might sit back and say, well, wow, France, Spain, they go to, are basically ganged up upon, but ultimately they get their way. Oh, no, no, no. Think again. By the 1700s, ladies and gentlemen, we have already known about those two massive continents on the other side of the earth called the North and South America, which, of course, is not on the opposite side, but far enough away that to them it was on the opposite side of the globe, that they had already obtained much land. All those European powers had. So, why then did Spain and France? allow to retain this national connection family connection was the grand alliance simply that benevolent saying well you know what we're going to go ahead and bury the axe here if this is the way philip wanted it by having charles's grand or Louis's grandson on the throne so be it oh no not at all spain and france would lose tremendously With this peace treaty signed in 1713, France would lose a significant amount of territory in North America, as would Spain. Spain would also lose that tiny little, but yet massive rock at the very, very tip of her peninsula, known as Gibraltar, which to this day, to this day, some truly 308 years later, an area of land that is still owned by Great Britain. Spain would also lose the dominant control of the African slave trade also to the Americas. So both France and Spain technically get what what they wanted on paper, but in reality lost a massive amount of stature, and physical land to go with it. And mind you, with England grabbing that that little tip of Gibraltar, something that Spain, working eventually through something called the Congress of Concert of Europe, eventually look, working through the uh, League of Nations, the United Nations, the current organize, uh, organizing international body to this day, has been looking to get Gibraltar annexed back to its own territory and it has yet to happen. To understand just why England would want this tiny little pinky nail of territory, it would be easiest to understand if you were able to see, get a, a map of Europe and able to look at Gibraltar, and you would see how close you have to zone zoom in to be able to see Gibraltar, and then you would understand, because whoever controls Gibraltar Directly across from Morocco, that tiny little neck of water controls all of the access and trade within the entire Mediterranean Sea. Tiny little land, but that has some significant strings attached to it. So, one more thing that also comes out of this is the concept of what we now call balance of power. Balance of power is exactly as its name or 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 the title of the term would suggest. It's any one country not possessing too much military or economic power compared to its neighboring countries. And what we're going to find, as was demonstrated in the reason that I covered the War of the Spanish Succession, is when it appeared as though that Spain and France, two technically very large physical countries, we're going to align their political families and become potentially one country, it was for obvious reasons then that those neighboring countries would, get, would ally with one another and gang up on and prevent those countries from uniting. Because even though they did not know in the, ter- in the sense of having the term, we need to balance once again this idea to set straight this balance of power, that is indeed what happened and this idea of the balance of power emerges with the peace treaty here in 1713 and will continue to affect international relations through to the literally to the recording of this podcast it will remain with us ever since that peace treaty all the way through to modern times So the last concept that I want to look at here is in the sense that this other political system that is going to emerge well after absolutism will actually emerge from one of the the European countries' individual colonies. And that, of course, is going to be the British colony within North America, the eventual country that will be called the United States of America. These will be the individual British colonists who will break away from Great Britain and attempt to form their own government, not based on any kind of absolute power, but power that will be derived technically from a piece of parchment, a document. This, ladies and gentlemen, will be known as constitutionalism. So constitutionalism, in order for it to work, it has to have, like absolutism has its three ideas or tenets, so does constitutionalism. There has to be, tenet number one, a limitation of government by the established legal system. Simply put, the limitation of government by law. Secondly, there has to be a balance between the governed and the governor, clearly in contrast of absolutism. Absolutism does not care about the relationship between the governor and the governed, the ruler and the people. Constitutionalism says, "Oh, not only do you have to be concerned with about that, there has to be a sense of balance as perceived, not by the rulers, but by the people. And third, if absolutism is going to work its way in here at all, it's going to be that absolute authority rests in the constitution absolutely i repeat that absolute authority will rest in a given constitution absolutely that is where it is diametrically opposed to the form political system of absolutism that had been been practiced on the continent of europe for constitutionalism to work absolute authority will rest in a written document, not any human being. So those three tenets: number one, limitation of government by law, two, balance between the governed and the governor has to be felt by the population, three, absolute authority resting in the Constitution. Now, one might beg the question, where and why did this idea come up to eventual group of what we'll call American Founding Fathers? And I'm not here to take anything away from the Founding Fathers. Not at all. In fact, this actually bolsters their boldness, if you will, of what they attempted to experiment with. We know this idea of democracy was practiced long ago in ancient Athens, but this is going to be, if you want to look at it, almost like democracy on steroids here. And where the idea came up was by two philosophers who predated the founding fathers by about a century. The first was Thomas Hobbes. In his work, The Leviathan, whereas he stated sovereignty is ultimately derived from the people who show allegiance to the government by an implicit contract. Implicit, of course, meaning applied or implied, excuse me. So that's what they get from Hobbes. Over from Locke in his second Treatise on civil government is that people set up the government to protect, ready for this phrase, life, liberty, and property. So wait a minute. I was just going to say, I recognize that phrase except for the end and property, but you're right. You did recognize it. Life, liberty. Let me use another, let me use a phrase in lieu of property. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson's words, ladies and gentlemen, were not original. They were taken from Locke, but nevertheless, still just as important. People set up government. Not simply to say, hey, I need something, I need someone, an entity to take my excess dollars. No, not to pay taxes. They set up government because they want a sense of security for their own lives. They want freedom to be secured and they want their land to be secured. That's what they were pulling from Locke. So, within this, that's what constitutionalism ultimately will consist of. And while the American Revolution is covered far more in depth in my series on American history, as we plot along in our series on world history, we will eventually chronologically when we get there to the late 1700s and, and discuss the war of North American rebellion, which is what England is going to call our American Revolution, we will discuss the war, not in any way detail of the event itself, but the types of dominoes that had fallen as a result of a group of founding fathers attempting to try to apply this new form of government called constitutionalism. So thank you for listening to this uh, podcast number 36 in world history. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. You could read my latest blogs as well as emailing me with any questions or comments. I also encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, which not newsletter so much as a blog, that before it goes live on my website, I will email to all of my listeners who subscribe and you'll have first read as well as first opportunity to respond at the blogs that I post every Tuesday. If you have any book recommendations for me as well, please leave those. Other than that, if you liked what we discussed today, please leave me a review. Uh, Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.